Thank you for tuning into the Yankee Journal, where we discuss all things New England. I am your host, David Michael Loveland Jr., recording from Pembroke, New Hampshire. Today, we're going to start off with a traditional New England recipe, stuffed quail with olives. Then we'll transition into our week's poetry, which is uh, from Robert Frost's collection, New Hampshire, A Star in a, Sto- a Stone Boat for Lincoln McFay. Then we'll go into our book review. This week we will be discussing 1776, the national bestseller written by David McCullough. Then we'll be going into the Encyclopedia of New England. This week um, we'll be going over folklore, more specifically basketry in the northeastern region. And then we'll be concluding with some short um, American history from the Patriots history of the United States from Columbus's great discovery to America's age of entitlement. We're going to be reading from chapter one um, in the section is Portugal and Spain, the explorers. Stuffed quail with olives. You'll need six quail, one pound of ground meat, beef, veal, and sausage combined, two large sprigs, parsley chopped, pinch of white pepper, pinch of dry mustard, four tablespoons butter or margarine, two strips bacon chopped, one spring thyme, margarine jam and parsley chopped, salt to taste, pepper to taste, two tablespoons flour, one cup beef stock, one half cup small green olives halved, one cup brandy or applejack. First, in kettle, simmer whole quail, one hour. Second, preheat oven to 375 degrees Fahrenheit. Three, combined ground meat, parsley, white pepper, and dry mustard, and stuff birds with mixture. Truss with string. Four, melt two tablespoons butter in large casserole and brown quail thoroughly. Remove quail. Five, in same casserole, put two tablespoons of butter plus bacon, herb, salt, and pepper. Sprinkle with flour, add beef stock and quail and bake, covered one hour. During last 20 minutes of cooking, add olives and brandy. Six, remove birds from casserole and arrange on hot platter, surrounded if desired with wild with wild rice. And seven, you must eat the stuffed quail with olives, and it's better shared with friends and family. Seventeen seventy six, written by David McCullough, is a national bestseller and was winner of the Pulitzer Prize. The New York Times book review said seventeen seventy six is a stirring and timely work. In this masterful book, historian David McCullough tells the intensely human story of those who marched with General George Washington in the year of the Declaration of Independence, when the whole American cause was riding on their success 
without which all hope for independence would have been dashed and the noble ideals of the Declaration would have amounted to little more than words on paper. Based on extensive research in both American and British archives, 1776 is a powerful drama written with extraordinary narrative vitality. It is the story of Americans in the ranks, men of every shape, size, and color, farmers, school teachers, shoemakers, no accounts, and mere boys turned soldiers. And it is the story of the King's men, the British commander, William Howe, and his highly disciplined redcoats, who looked on their rebel foes with contempt and fought with a valor too little known. At the center of the drama with Washington are two young American patriots who, at first, knew no more of war than what they had read in books. Nathaniel Green, a Quaker who was made a general at 33, and Henry Knox, a 25-year-old bookseller who had the preposterous idea of hauling the guns of Fort Ticonderoga overland to Boston in the dead of winter. But it is the American commander-in-chief who stands foremost, Washington, who had never before led an army in battle. Written as a companion work to his celebrated biography of John Adams, David McCullough's 1776 is another landmark in the literature of American history. David McCullough has twice received the Pulitzer Prize for Truman and John Adams, and twice received the National Book Award for The Path Between the Seas and Mornings on Horseback. His other widely praised books are Brave Companions, The Great Bridge, and The Johnstown Flood. He has been honored with the National Book Foundation Distinguished Contribution to American Letters in the National Humanities Medal. Now we shall move on to this week's poetry, written by Robert Frost. We're going to go over A Star in a Stone Boat for Lincoln McVeigh from the collection New Hampshire. Never tell me that not one star of all that slip from heaven at night, softly fall, has been pickled up with stones to build a wall. Some laborer found one faded and stone cold, and saving that its weight suggests gold, and tugged it from his first to certain hold. He noticed nothing in it to remark he was not used to handling stars thrown dark and lifeless from an interrupted arc. He did not recognize in that smooth coal the one thing palpable besides the soul to penetrate the air in which we roll. He did not see how, like a flying thing, it brooded ant eggs and had one large wing, one not so large for flying in a ring. And a long bird of paradise's tail, though these were not in use to fly and trail, it drew back in its body like a snail nor know that he might move it from the spot. The harm was done from having been star shot. The very nature of the soil was hot. In burning to yield flowers instead of grain, flowers fanned and not put out by all the rain, poured on them by his prayers, prayed in vain. He moved it roughly with an iron bar. He loaded an old stone boat with the star, and not as you might think, a flying car. 
such as even poets would admit preforce, more practical than Pegasus the horse. If it could put a star back in its course, he dragged it through the plowed ground at a pace, but faintly reminiscent of the race of jostling rock in interstellar space. It went for building stone and I as though, commanded in a dream forever ago, to right the wrong that this should have been so. Yet ask where else it could have gone as well, I do not know, I cannot stop to tell. He might have left it lying where it fell. From following walls I never lift my eye, except at night to places in the sky, where showers of charted meteors let fly. Some may know what they seek in school and church, and why they seek it there for what I search. I must go measuring stone walls, perch on perch. Sure that though not a star of death and birth, so not to be compared perhaps in worth, to such resorts of life as Mars and Earth, though not, I say, a star of death and sin, it yet has poles and only needs a spin to show its worldly nature and begin. To chafe and shuffle in my cal callous palm and run off in strange tangents with my arm as fish do with the line and first alarm. Such as it is, it promises the prize of the one world complete in any size that I am like to compass, fool, or wise. That concludes this week's poem by Robert Frost, A Star in a Stone Boat for Lincoln McVeigh from the collection, New Hampshire. Now, on the Yankee Journal podcast, we're going to transition to the Encyclopedia of New England. This week, we're reading from the folklore section on basketry. Basket making was practiced among Native American communities throughout New England long before the colonial period and continues to be a popular regional craft through the present day. Native Americans passed on the tradition to European settlers who also brought some of their own basket making traditions. During the 17th century, every New England home had a few baskets of various size, from tiny baskets that held odds and ends to large laundry and storage baskets. Baskets were plentiful because of the availability of basket-making materials collected from the rich woodlands of the region. Some groups, such as the Shakers, made baskets a part of their economy. Three traditions, Native American, Shaker, and Nantucket Lightship, exemplify some of the best of New England basketry and their reputations extend well beyond the region's borders. The basket maker uses natural materials and one of three techniques, plating, coiling, or weaving. In plating, the basket maker cross weaves the wefts, which are horizontal threads, and the warps, which are threads that run lengthwise, creating a checkerboard effect. In coiling strips or bundles of fibers are wrapped into a spiral and sewn together at various points. In weaving, the wefts and warps are interlaced. Baskets are classified according to materials. Ash splint baskets, 
willow baskets, root or branch baskets, sturdy birch bark baskets. Shaker baskets are generally made from ash and popular trees. Light ship baskets from the island of Nantucket are made partly of Native American, excuse me, partly of Native woods and partly of imported cane materials. Other baskets are made of various materials, including reeds from China, raffia in Madagascar, and palm leaves from Cuba and Florida. The most ubiquitous New England basket type is the ash splint basket produced by several Native American groups, particularly the Mi'kmaq, Passamaquoddy, and Penobscot of Maine. The popularity of this basket is due to the ash itself, which is extremely pliable. The trunk of the black ash tree is cut into logs, which are then pounded to separate the splints so they can easily be peeled. The splints thickness depends on the annual growth. Thicker splints make for sturdier baskets, such as those used for laundry. The basket maker first forms the ribs or side pieces and then begins to weave in smaller splints until the desired size and design are created. The basket is finished when its handles are made by threading splints into the rim so as not to show no nails or metal are used. Some ash splint baskets are decorated with a simple pattern made by dipping a potato into dye and then stamping it onto the basket. Some New England baskets were made by families in rural and ethnic communities and given to neighbors, sold at roadsides to tourists, or brought to market. For example, willow baskets and woven birch bark baskets, a Scandinavian tradition, could be found in places where emigrants from Finland settled in New England, particularly on Cape Ann in Massachusetts. Sweetser baskets of Vermont are also well known as are Abbott Baskets of Maine and Stevens Baskets of Connecticut. Sweetser Baskets were made by Arthur Sweetser of Waterbury, Vermont during the 1940s. He learned the tradition of making black ash splint baskets from his father, who learned it from his grandmother. Newt Washburn, a member of this family, learned basket making in 1923 when he was only eight years old and continues the tradition today. The Shakers, who established their communal societies in New England in the late 18th century, are well known for their excellent craftsmanship. In addition to making furniture and running successful seed businesses, the Shakers also made and sold baskets as well as other crafts. The Shakers made fancy baskets of white poplar that were woven on wooden forms. They also made black split ash baskets for home and farm use. Shaker baskets are characterized by their variety of patterns. There has long been a tradition of basket making on Nantucket Island, possibly derived from Native American tradition, but the faraway island is best known for its light ship baskets. Originally designed for utilitarian rather than decorative purposes, these baskets are often made in graduated sizes to nest one inside the other. Light ship baskets are particularly distinctive because they are woven on a mold, have sturdy wooden bottoms, and are very tight. They are made from a variety of native and imported woods, including oak and rattan. 
the wooden molds were often passed down from one generation of basket makers to the next. Light ship baskets were originally made by men stationed on the South Shoal light ship beginning in the 1850s. Mitchell, Mitchie Ray, and Jose Rise were two of the best known light ship basket makers. Rise was known for putting a piece of decorative scrimshaw at the suggestion of scrimshaw maker Charlie Sale on the baker's top and turning the baskets into expensive ladies' pocketbooks called friendship baskets, which are still made by hand on Nantucket today. Ray was known for the trademark rhyme on his baskets. I was made on Nantucket, I'm strong and I'm stout, don't lose me or burn me, and I'll never wear out. The Nantucket basket making tradition has continued on the island. Michael Kane and Judy Bill Sale, son of Charlie Sale, are well-known basket makers who use wooden molds in the traditional way. Visitors can stop by their shops and watch the baskets being made in various stages. Bobby Marks, a sixth-generation Nantucketer, now of Osterville, Mass., owns a successful shop called Oak and Ivory. While traditional basket shops such as Micmac Images in Presque Isle, Maine, can be found throughout New England, many are poor imitations tailored to the demands of the tourist market. However, basket makers such as Helen Baller of Orleans, Mass., and Newt Washburn of Vermont, and organizations such as the Maine Arts Commission and the Maine Indian Basket Makers Alliance keep the basket-making tradition alive and well in New England. Lastly, on the Yankee Journal, we're going to be reading from A Patriot's History of the United States, From Columbus's Great Discovery to America's Age of Entitlement, written by Larry Shukart and Michael Allen. We're going to be reading from Chapter 1, Portugal and Spain, The Explorers. Ironically, one of the smallest of the new monarchical states, Portugal, has become the first to subsidize ex extensive exploration in the 15th century. The most famous of the Portuguese explorers, Prince Henry, dubbed the navigator, was the brother of King Edward of Portugal. Henry, 1394 through 1460, had earned a reputation as a tenacious fighter in North Africa against the Moors, and he helped to roll back the Muslim invaders and reclaim them trade routes and territory. A true Renaissance man, Henry immersed himself in map-making and exploration from a coastal center he established at Sagres on the southern point of Portugal. There, he trained navigators and map-makers, dispatched ships to probe the African coast, and evaluated the reports of sailors who returned from the, the Azores. Portuguese captains made contacts with Arabs and Africans in coastal areas and established trading centers from which they brought ivory and gold to Portugal, then transported slaves to a variety of Mediterranean estates. This early slave trade was conducted through Arab middlemen or African traders 
who carried out slaving expeditions in the interior and exchanged captive men, women, and children for fish, wine, or salt on the coast. Henry saw these relatively small trading outposts as only the first step in developing reliable water routes to the east. Daring sailors trained at Henry's school soon pushed farther southward, finally surrounding Cape of Storms in 1486, when Bartholomew Dias was blown off course by fantastic winds. King John II eventually changed the name of the Cape to the Cape of Good Hope, reflecting the promise of a new route to India offered by Dias's discovery. That promise became reality in 1498, after Vasco da Gama sailed to Calicut, India. An abrupt decline in Portuguese fortunes led to her eclipse by larger Spain, reducing resources available for investment and exploration and limiting Portuguese voyages to the Indian Ocean to an occasional boatload of convicts. Moreover, the prize for which Portuguese explorers had risked so much now seemed small in comparison to that discovery by their rivals, the Spanish, under the bold seamanship of Christopher Columbus, a man the King of Portugal had once refused to fund. Indeed, almost everyone refused to fund Columbus. He made seven presentations to various committees, monarchs, or other parties before King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella underwrote his journey. This in itself was miraculous, for had his dozens come from England, France, or Portugal, he would have departed from the Azores or Bristol and not picked up the crucial northeast trade wind. Having departed from Spain in August of 1492, however, and laying in a course to the Canary Islands, Columbus sailed due west for what he thought was a direct line to Japan, although he never mentioned Cathay prior to 1493. A native of Genoa, Columbus embodied the best of the new generation of navigators, resilient, courageous, and confident. In his book of prophecies, he recounted his preparation for his mission, saying, I have had commence in conversation with knowledgeable people of the clergy and lady, Latins and Greeks, Jews and Moors, and our Lord has endowed me with a great talent for seamanship, sufficient ability in astrology, geometry, and arithmetic, and the mental and physical dexterity required to draw spherical maps. To be sure, Columbus wanted glory and a motivation born of desperation fueled his vision. At the same time, Columbus was earnestly desirous of taking Christianity to heathen lands. He did not, as it popularly believed, originate the idea that the earth is round. As early as 1480, for example, he read proclaiming the spiracy of the planet, but knowing intellectually that the earth is round and demonstrating it physically are two different things and it very possibly could have fallen to the Chinese to prove it had not upon the return of imposing treasure fleet in 1423 turned inward and under Emperor Zhu Gaozi scrapped the fleet. Gavin Menzies claimed that the Chinese reached the new world but the so-called evidence collapses. By the year 1500 
anyone constructing a Chinese vessel with more than two masts face the death penalty. Thus, whether one considers it divine, providence, or pure luck, Columbus appeared at precisely the right time in human history to discover the New World. Columbus's fleet consisted of only three vessels, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, and a crew of 90 men. Leaving port in August of 1492, the expedition eventually passed the point where the sailors expected to find Japan, generating no small degree of anxiety, whereupon Columbus used every managerial skill he possessed to maintain discipline and encourage hope. The mere fact that he did not hug shorelines, but went cross-ocean, was itself daring and unusual. But the voyage had stretched to ten weeks when the crew boarded on a mutiny, and only the captain's reassurance and exhortions persuaded the sailors to continue a few more days. Finally, on October 11, 1492, they started to see signs of land, pieces of wood loaded with barnacles, green bulrushes, and other vegetation. A lookout spotted land, and on October 12, 1492, the courageous band waded ashore on Waitling Island in the Bahamas, where his mere men begged his pardon for doubting him. It should be noted that the actual location of Columbus's landing remains in hot dispute. An elaborate study by the National Geographic Society resulted in total disagreement as to where he landed because scholars all started with different and unprovable assumptions. Columbus continued to Cuba, which he called Juana. At the same time, he thought he had reached the Far East and referred to the dark-skinned people he found as Indians. He found these Indians very well-formed, with handsome bodies and good faces, and hoped to convert them to our holy faith by love rather than by force, by giving them red caps and glass beads, and many other things of small value. Dispatching emissaries into the interior to contact the great Khan, Columbus's scouts returned with no reports of the spices, jewels, silks, or other evidence of Cathay, nor did the Khan send his regards. By December, he had turned southeast to explore the island he named Hispaniola, which contains the modern-day state of Haiti in the Dominican Republic. There, he left 39 men behind to found the settlement of La Navidad. Nevertheless, Columbus returned to Spain confident he had found an ocean passage to the Orient. Reality gradually forced Columbus to a new conclusion. He had not reached India or China, and after a second voyage in 1493, still convinced he was in the Pacific Ocean, Columbus admitted he had stumbled on a new landmass, perhaps even a new continent of astounding natural resources and wealth. In February 1493, he wrote his Spanish patrons that Hispaniola and other islands like it were fertile to limitless degree, possessing mountains covered by trees of a thousand kinds and tall, so they, that they seemed to touch the sky. He confidently promised gold caught in spices, as much as their highnesses should command, in return for only minimal continued support. Meanwhile, 
he continued to probe the Mundus Novus, south and west. After returning to Spain yet again, Columbus made two more voyages to the New World in 1498 and 1502. Whether Columbus had found parts of the Far East or an entirely new land was irrelevant to most Europeans at the time. Political distractions abounded in Europe. Spain had barely evicted the Muslims after the long Reconquista and England's War of the Roses had scarcely ended. News of Columbus's discoveries excited only a few merchants, explorers, and dreamers. Still, the prospect of finding a waterway to Asia infatuated sailors, and Columbus's proof of the existence of the trade winds from the east greatly shortened the journey westward. But another man would gain the glory of the name of the new territories. In 1501, a Florentine passenger on a Portuguese voyage, Amerigo Vespucci, wrote letters to his friends in which he described the new world. His self-promoting dispatches circulated sooner than Columbus's own written accounts, and as a result, the term America soon was attached by geographers to the continents in the Western Hemisphere that should by right have been named Columbia. But if Columbus did not receive the honor of having the new world named for him, and if he acquired only temporary wealth and fame in Spain, Receiving from the crown the title Admiral of the Ocean Sea, his place in history was never in doubt. Historian Samuel Elliott Morrison, a worthy seaman in his own right, who reenacted the Columbian voyages in 1939 and 1940, described Columbus as the sign and symbol of the new age of hope, glory, and accomplishment. Once Columbus blazed the trail, other Spanish explorers had less trouble obtaining financial backing for expeditions. Vasco Nunez de Balboa crossed the Isthmus of Panama to the Pacific Ocean, as he named it. Ferdinand Magellan, 1519-22, circumnavigated the globe, lending his name to the Strait of Magellan. Other expeditions explored the interior of the newly discovered lands. Juan Ponce de Leon, traversing an area along Florida's coast, attempted unsuccessfully to plant a colony there. Spaniards crossed modern-day Mexico, probing interior areas under Hernando Cortes, who in 1518 led a force of 1,000 soldiers to Tenochtitlan, the site of present-day Mexico City. Cortes encountered powerful Indians called Aztecs, led by their emperor, Montezuma. The Aztecs had established a brutal regime that oppressed other natives of the region, capturing large numbers of them for ritual sacrifices in which Aztec priests cut out the beating hearts of living victims. Such barbarity enabled the Spanish to easily enlist other tribes, especially the Tlaxiclans, in their effort to defeat the Aztecs. Tenochtitlan sat on an island in the middle of a lake connected to the outlying areas by three huge causeways. It was a monstrously large city for the time of at least 200,000 rigidly divided into nobles and commoner groups. Aztec culture created impressive pyramid-shaped temple structures, but Aztec science lacked the simple wheel and the wide range of pulleys and gears that it enabled. 
But it was sacrifice, not science, that defined Aztec society, whose pyramids, after all, were execution sites. A four-day sacrifice in 1487 by the Aztec king, Ahuitzal, involved the butchery of 80,400 prisoners by shifts of priests working four at a time at convicts killing tables. After ripping out their hearts, the priests kicked lifeless, heartless bodies down the side of the pyramid temple. This worked out to a killing rate of 14 victims in a minute over the 96-hour bloodbath. In addition to the abdominal sacrifice system, crime and street carnage were commonplace. More intriguing to the Spanish than the buildings, or even the sacrifices, however, were the legends of gold, silver, and other riches Tenochtitlan contained, protected by the powerful Aztec army. Along the way to Tenochtitlan, Cortes gained the alliance of many tribes hostile to the Aztecs, particularly the Tlaxcala, who accompanied him to, no to Tenochtitlan. Unopposed at first, Cortes was received by Montezuma, who, according to most historians, used the meeting to assess his enemy's weaknesses. But after treachery by the Spanish, Montezuma was killed and Cortes' men were driven from the city with heavy casualties. They narrowly escaped extermination. Desperate Spanish fought their way out on Nostriste, the sad night, when hundreds of them fell on the causeway. Cortez's men piled human bodies, Aztec and Europeans alike, in heaps to block Aztec pursuers, then retreated to Tlaxacala where the Spanish recovered under the protection of their Indian allies. Shortly thereafter, a dehabilitating smallpox epidemic, called by the Aztecs the Great Rash, swept both camps. But the disease particularly devastated the Aztec leadership and prevented them from destroying the shattered Spanish. In 1521, Cortes returned with a new Spanish army, supported by more than 25,000 Indian allies. Using gunboats from the lakeside and his ground forces landward, he cut off supplies to Tenochtitlan. Starvation killed those Aztecs, whom the diseases did not. They died in heaps like bedbugs, wrote one historian. Even so, neither disease nor starvation or the ever-popular view that Aztecs thought the Spanish were gods accounted for the Spaniards' stunning victory over the vastly larger Aztec forces. Rather, the Spanish victory can be credited to their use of European-style disciplined shot combat, employing steel swords and pikes versus Aztec wooden stone-tipped weapons, and their use of modern firepower, including cannons, muskets, and crossbows. Severing the causeways, stationing huge units to guard each. Cortes assaulted the city walls from 13 uh, brigantines the Spaniards had hauled over land, sealing off the city. These brigantines proved far more ingeniously engineered for fighting on the Aztecs' native waters than any boat constructed in Mexico during the entire history of its civilization. When it came to the final battle, it was not the brigantines, but Cortez's use of cannons, musket, harquebuses, crossbows, and pikes in deadly discipline, firing in order, and standing as a unit 
against a murderous mass of Aztecs who fought as individuals rather than a cohesive force that proved decisive. Spanish technology, including the wheel-related ratchet gears on muskets, constituted only one element of European military superiority. They fought as other European land armies fought in formation, with their officers open to new ideas based on practicality, not theology. Where no Aztec would dare approach the godlike Montezuma with a military strategy, Cortes debated tactics with his lieutenants routinely, and the European way of war endowed each Castilian soldier with a sense of individual rights, civic duty, and personal freedom non-existent in the Aztec kingdom. Moreover, the Europeans sought to kill their enemy and force his permanent surrender, not forge an arrangement for a steady supply of sacrifice victims. Thus, Cortes captured the Aztec capital in 1521 at a cost of more than 100,000 Aztec. If Europeans resembled other cultures in their attitude towards conquest, they differed substantially in their practice and effectiveness. The Spanish, especially, proved adept at defeating native peoples for three reasons. First, they were mobile. Horses and ships endowed the Spanish with vast advantages in mobility over the natives. Second, the burgeoning economic power of Europe enabled quantum leaps over Middle Eastern, Asian, and Mesoamerican cultures. The economic wealth made possible the shipping and equipping of large, trained, well-armed forces. Non-military technological advances such as the iron tip plow, the windmill, and the water wheel all had spread through Europe and allowed monarchs to employ fewer resources in the farming sector and in more in science, engineering, writing, and the military. A natural outgrowth of this economic wealth was in was the soldier the equal of several poorly armed natives, offsetting the latter's numerical advantage. But these two factors were magnified by a third element, the glue that held it all together, which was a Western way of combat that emphasized group cohesion of free citizens. Like the ancient Greeks and Romans, Cortes' Castilians brought from a long tradition of tactical adaption based on individual freedom, civic rights, and a preference for shock battle of heavy infantry that grew out of consensual government, equality among the middling classes, and other distinctly Western traits that gave numerically inferior European armies a decisive edge. That made it possible for tiny expeditions such as Ponce de Leon's with only 200 men and 50 horses or Narvaez's with a force of 600, including cooks, colonists, and women, to overcome native Mexican armies, outnumbering them two, three, and even ten times at any particular time. More to the point, no native culture could have conceived of maintaining expeditions of thousands of men in the field for months at a time. Virtually all of the natives lived off the land and took slaves back to their home, as opposed to colonizing new territory with their own settlers. Indeed, only the European industrial engine could have proved the material wherewithal to maintain such armies, and only the European political constructs of liberty, property rights, and nationalism kept men in combat for abstract political causes. 
European combat style produced yet another advantage in that firearm showed no favoritism on the battlefield. Spanish gunfire destroyed the hierarchy of the enemy, including the aristocratic dominant political classes. Aztec chiefs and Moorish sultans alike were completely vulnerable to massed firepower, yet without the legal framework of republicanism and civic virtue like Europe's to replace its leadership cadre, a native army could be decapitated at the head with one volley, where areas the Spanish forces could see lieutenants fall and seamlessly replace them with sergeants. Technology and disease certainly played prominent roles in the conquest of Spanish America, but the oppressive nature of the Aztecs played no small role in their overthrow. And in both Peru and Mexico, the structure of the Indian societies facilitated the Spanish conquest at ridiculously low cost. In addition, Montezuma's ruling hierarchical strongly centralized structure in which subjects devoted themselves and their labor to the needs of the state made it easy for the Spanish to adapt the system to their own control. Once the Spanish had eliminated Aztec leadership, they replaced it with themselves at the top. The common people exchanged one group of despots for another of a different skin color. By the time the Aztecs fell, the news that silver existed in large quantities in Mexico had reached Spain, attracting still other conquistadors. Hernando de Soto explored Florida, 1539 to 41, succeeding where Juan Ponce de Leon had failed and ultimately crossed the Mississippi River, dying there in 1542. Meanwhile, marching northward from Mexico, Francisco Vasquez de Coronado pursued other Indian legends of riches in the seven cities of Cibola. Supposedly, gold and silver existed in abundance there, but Coronado's 270-man expedition found none of the fabled cities, and in 1541 he returned to Spain, having mapped much of the American Southwest. By the 1570s, enough was known about Mexico and the Southwest to attract settlers, and some 200 Spanish settlements existed, containing in all more than 160,000 Europeans. Traveling with every expedition were priests and friars, and the first permanent building erected by Spaniards was often a church of God. Conquistadors generally believed that converting the heathen ranked near or even above the acquisition of the riches. Even as the Dominican friar and bishop of Chiapas, Bartolome de la Casas, sharply criticized his countrymen in his writings for making bloody, unjust, and cruel wars against the Indians. The so-called Black Legend, a second army of mercy, Spanish missionaries labored selflessly under harsh conditions to bring the gospel to the Indians. In some cases, as with the Pueblo Indians, large numbers of Indians converted to Christianity albeit a mixture of traditional Catholic teachings and their own religious practices, which, of course, the Roman Church deplored. Attempts to suppress such distortions led to uprisings such as the 1680 Pueblo Revolt that killed 21 priests and hundreds of Spanish colonists, although even the rebellious Pueblos eventually rejoined the Spanish as their allies. Explorers had to receive from the king a license that entitled the grantee 
to large estates and a percentage of returns from the expedition. From the estates, explorers carved out ranches that provide an agricultural base and encourage other settlers to emigrate. Although the proprietor exacted a tribute of labor or agricultural products, the status of the natives was as wards, not slaves or even serfs. While the difference to the subservient population may have seemed minimal, and while in practice the tribute differed scarcely from that taken by the Aztecs legally and foundationally, it constituted a fundamental shift in the view of personhood. More important, the colonists next would generally found a mission, and in very short order, the Dominican missionaries protested the abuse of the natives, a development unseen in Islam or the Far East. Finally, the Spanish government established formal forts, presidios. The most prominent of the presidios dotted the California coast with the largest at San Diego. Royal governors and local bureaucrats maintained the empire in Mexico and the southwest with considerable autonomy from Spain. Distance alone made it difficult for the crown to convince activities in the new world, consequently a new culture accompanied the Spanish occupation. With intermarriage between Europeans and Indians, a large mestizo population, today referred as Mexican or Hispanic people, resulted. It generally adopted Spanish culture and Spanish values. And that concludes our reading today from A Patriot's History of the United States. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Yankee Journal, where we discuss all things New England, and we touch base on a little bit of American history, too. Because after all, being an American is what a Yankee is all about. Thank you to our sponsor, David Loveland Jr., Keeler Family Realtor, The 603 Realtor, also known as Mr. 603, serving the Granite State in the United States. If you would like to learn more about buying, selling, or investing in real property, please reach out to Mr. 603, David M. Loveland Jr., Keeler Family Realtor at 603-520-7924 or 603-225-3353 extension 303 or Visit David at 567 Pembroke Street, Pembroke, New Hampshire, 03275. Thank you again for listening to the Yankee Journal. We appreciate your support, and until next time.